Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And very special guest on the factory floor with us today, uh, host of Wiseman Podcast, Sean Glynis is hanging out with us. Sean, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Being a, a doc head as you are, being a, an authority on the documentary <laughs> format, we felt it was only proper to discuss probably the best documentary of the 1990s, I think in many people's eyes, um, and also just one of the, the best sports films outright of the decade as well. We are talking about the 1994 film Hoop Dreams. Uh, and this marks the first, I think, foray into nonfiction on oh, Hit cool. Factory for us. Cool. Had, had either of you seen this before? I was just going to go there and say yeah. I, we, we have to tell on ourselves a little bit here that in spite of knowing the legacy of this film and, uh-huh. and being familiar with it sort of, you know, within film conversations, this was a first watch for me. As it was for me as well. Cool. That's that's very exciting for me. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've heard that a lot from people that I've like introduced it to or like watched it with that they're like, like, I know about Hoop Dreams, but it's like a three hour thing that i have to like make time for um and then you watch it and you're like oh that was like the most like uh i won't i won't say easy but like very um gripping and uh yeah it doesn't doesn't feel like three hours incredibly watchable and Mm -hmm. like also the thing that aaron and i kept saying to each other as we were watching it was like you couldn't write this like Mm -hmm. It's almost like too cinematic, which is like the the funny thing about it. Like there were times where I was like, this is like out of a movie, but it's not because like this wouldn't even happen in a movie. It's just really, really riveting. Yeah, it's interesting as a sports movie, um, how it compares with uh, fictional sports films like just the the ways that it shows things that um like hollywood uh sports films usually don't um and uh yeah i don't know just like it just keeps going too like it's one of those things where like every time i I I was watching part of it with my partner and and she had never seen it before and it was she was just like i can't take this anymore like um it's a it's a film that like kind of keeps beating you down but then there's these small victories i think that are are uh, really hardening i was amazed at how um just immaculate the 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 navigation of tone is throughout the entire film it never felt to me like there was too much like architecting like i i <laughs> didn't ever get the sense that the the director's hands were in everything and that there was a lot of like editorializing. I'm sure there is because that's the nature of, of sure. any sort of documentary film. But, but I really appreciated that a lot of it just sort of felt like it was left to unfold um, and for us to come to conclusions ourselves and, and feel the feelings right along with the people that were being mm-hmm. documented. I mean, so they they were like the project started as like this thirty minute short about like basketball, and uh, just turned into this like years long project. Um, so I think there's so much there to for them to work with that kind of like it makes itself. I mean, that's not really how filmmaking works, but uh, but like they, I, I feel like they had 
so much material to work with that it doesn't feel like they had to wring out something from it. And obviously subjects that, that just like keep giving them such like gold. Um, but there, there is a funny like thing on, on the commentary with the filmmakers. They talk about like this weird mix of like making a film that is like sad, like this one is often like, and connecting with your subjects while also as a filmmaker being like, this is, gold <laughs> like there is this yeah. weird like yeah. there's this dichotomy going on that um is like a conflict uh within yourself as like a socially conscious filmmaker our lights were cut off our gas were cut off and we were sitting in the dark you look around your house you see your food getting low but you see why half of them become game bangers and you know because it's, it's nothing constructed in a neighborhood form those people used to come up to me, oh, your father, drug out of your father on drugs and stuff. I just be like, yeah, okay. Do you all wonder sometimes how am I living? Or how do my children survive? Or how they living? I just never been around a lot of white people, and uh, it was different because at a black school, you know, I could associate with the people that was, you know, you know, they talked the way I talked. Your ACT came in, William, and you received a 14 for a composite, which is not high enough. Everything is just going great. Now this. Marshall got here because of one reason. Arthur A.G. Look at this man. He just explodes, man. I may have seen the next Isaiah Thomas. William Gates. Shouldn't Put it in your memory Put bank, Put it in your memory bank. William okay. Gates. Uh, Sean, when did you first see Hoop Dreams? Like, what is your experience with it? I know I had seen parts of it here and there, like just growing up um, around Chicago and like knowing like it, it was a thing uh, because um, I was also like obsessed with basketball growing up. And um, it obviously like was a big deal, like the first like documentary film to like make money basically and um like make a big deal in sundance and go uh theatrically like it was just kind of like the first like blockbuster documentary and then i think it played on like pbs and things like that um or like tapes passed around so i i remember seeing parts of it but as a kid but not really understanding like the heft of it um and then like 15 years ago or so, I remember sitting down and be like, okay, I'm going to like, as an adult, like watch this and kind of realize what all it is. Um, and have like gone back to it a couple of times, uh, since then. So, um, it's a film that I've kind of like grown with and each time being able to like, see like more of this world that it's commenting on, like without really tr without being like a big subject movie like that's not what it's trying to do but using these two subjects that like themselves by their existence tease out these very large ideas there's a, a certain element of this film that rewards you just as a kind of cut and dry sports documentary mm -hmm. you know you do get caught up in the ecstasy of the wins and the losses and and all of that um there's certainly a, a brilliant commentary here on racial disparity, economic disparity, you know, but this also is just like a, a brilliant sort of microcosm of American capitalism as well. 
um, and and you know something that you're kind of keyed into as I think you grow with this and and start to understand its its textures and layers. Uh, you just see the the ways that this how how corrosive this system is to so mm-hmm. many people, you know. And and in, in the back of my mind, as I was watching this, I, I couldn't help but think of you know not just William Gates and, and Arthur Agee, the the two subjects, but all of the other like all the other kids in these neighborhoods in Chicago and, and all over the country, really, who have these hopes and dreams of finding some sort of success in in professional basketball, who don't make it and who are yeah. kind of left battered and bloody along the way you know by by the system yeah well uh, well first of all uh like what is your guys's knowledge of of basketball or like professional like do you guys have much of a knowledge of that i no okay okay cool <laughs> yeah i mean like you know i I've, i follow the the nba sort of topically i haven't sure. in, in many years um i think under my hoodie right now i'm wearing a san antonio spurs t-shirt nice, um, but nice. you know that's that's like the extent of it is you know a, a very sort of passive fan yeah. of, of watching a game here and there my knowledge is that i used to play center in middle oh, nice. school and high school because i'm very tall um <laughs> but like certainly not at the level that these kids were playing never right, in right. my life um and obviously like along with that came an interest in like college basketball actually more so than professional basketball but that's like yeah you know it's it's pretty it's pretty surface level my experience but I, I know I, sort of the mechanics of the game. Sure, sure. <laughs> I asked because, um, like, littered throughout this movie are faces that, uh, like, you will recognize if you, especially like if you're like really into the NBA in the '90s, um, like people who did make it, right? That are like just sort of like on the fringes of this movie, like here and there, mm. um, and which which is just interesting in its own right. But uh, they. Um, talk about how there were a couple other subjects that they were potentially interested in. And one that Steve James said he won't mention, which probably means it was somebody that people would recognize. But um, it's interesting to think about like what this film would be if they followed two other people. But I think really the idea is that any of these kids, like this is not a story that's specific to Arthur Agee and William Gates, right? Um, that any of these kids have like a story that has all like, this is a story of the existence of like kids like them, like you're saying their neighbors around them. Um, but within that, there's just like this predatory system that is like so entangled, uh, and goes so many different ways that like, you know, you have the scouts that are just trying to do their jobs, but also are complicit. Right. And you have like, this school that is like giving them a good education on their own terms, but also like extracting money from them. And like the scouts are also playing a part in taking these kids out of their own neighborhood and taking them to these other neighborhoods that are very hard to socialize for these kids. Like that's, that's a totally different world. And like, you see Arthur like on the bus with like a three hour round trip commute by, by himself like when he's a freshman in high school like mm-hmm. I, I walked like two blocks to school yep, <laughs> like, same yeah um i can't imagine um and uh then you have like the coaches like the scouts of college and how they like one of them the marquette guy like talking at one point about how like we're trying to keep our jobs like it's it, there's a level of sympathy that steve james has in this and all of his movies that um, 
is really generous and speaks to just like his perspective uh, as a person. Um, but uh, where he's he's willing to show like the system as it works, while also like he's not trying to be like a a muckraker and and mm. and villainize these people. Um, like he's just kind of like showing, like you said, like the capitalist system. It's easy to say like this film is about capitalism, but I, I think that what makes it interesting is a specific moment in capitalism um, in the uh, late eighties, early nineties. And like seeing these specific issues like cocaine uh, ruin people's lives and uh, like industrialized industrialization, like move to the suburbs and these men no longer have jobs or like, you know, they have a job for a little bit and then they don't have it anymore. And then they're making like minimum wage. And it's just like, is miserable <laughs> and then there's gang violence and it's like all connected uh so it's like this like locus of urban crises uh in this three-hour film that like the more i watch it the more i'm like this should be much longer than three hours you totally hit the nail on the head with regards to the movie showcasing you know, sort of how parasitic every corner of this system is. Mm -hmm. And there's the trope from, I think, like some basketball movie, maybe it's love and basketball, maybe it's something else that like basketball is life. Mm -hmm. But like, I couldn't help but feel that watching this, like that it's this microcosm of, you know, sort of American life more broadly and, and the system more broadly of everyone sort of forced into positions of, individual pursuit of wealth mm -hmm. and like by their nature that being adversarial and exploitative um even when you see like in the instance of the scouts is when i really felt it where it's like yeah they are also just trying to like the one guy says one of the coaches like we've got to fill this stadium mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. i don't fill this stadium i lose my job mm -hmm. um and that's not necessarily to say like Oh, these guys have it just as bad as as these oh, kids because yeah. they certainly right. don't. But but to your point that there is um it's just like the serpent it's a, eating yeah. itself. Yeah, it's not about these individual people doing bad things, right? Right. It, it's about something much larger than them. Um yeah, it is interesting. Well, as we talk about the scouts, like to see the the scout that we see in the beginning who discovers Arthur on the court, mm -hmm. like one of the great like arcs in this movie is to see him at the end being like, like realizing what he's done. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. like, yes. and then he stops. So he, he stops, like he takes personal responsibility um, and recognizes what he has done to some kids. And uh, it's just like, it's not worth it for me anymore. I think that also speaks to your second point about this very specifically being about a certain time in America um, when all of these narratives surrounding our most impoverished populations mm -hmm. um, were being yeah. used to justify their position in society. And this film, without doing anything other than just showing you their lives candidly and openly, counters every single one of those narratives mm -hmm, mm -hmm. counters the the lie of the welfare queen counters mm -hmm. the lie of you know these people lacking personal responsibility and you also see in figures like pingator who um is a complicated character and we can get into that 
but how much he embodies those perspectives, even just like implicitly. There's a line he says at one point, and these things just sort of fall out of his mouth where he's like, you people just don't want to work, do you? And I was like, that is like the American government and American society at large Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, uh, on their commentary, you know, toward black population. And he can get away with it because there's like, you know, maybe a, a white kid peppered into the, the team right. here and there. But like there's there's so many of those moments where you just kind of hear his implicit bias and just sort of like his kind of very subtly racialized kind of remarks that, that you realize that he, he sees what he's doing as like providing maybe like the sole level of like uh, discipline and, and opportunity in these kids lives. I think he thinks very highly of himself. Yeah. Ping is, is interesting character because like, I don't know, like it's, it's easy to, think of him as like the ultimate villain. And when I was listening to the commentary with the filmmakers, they kind of talk about how it's like, we're set up through uh, like the construct of fictional filmmaking to like view him as a villain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I long have, and kind of questioning this time around, like what, what that uh, like questioning whether that is, is a value to, to, call him the ultimate villain. I, I watch him and I think he's disgusting. Um, but uh, the, I don't know. They have more sympathy for him than I do, like the filmmakers do. Um, and see like his interactions towards the end of the film with like Arthur. I think they see like the ways that Ping is unable to articulate his own emotions to students mm-hmm. and his connections and, and kind of sympathize with that, which they're probably just better people than I am, but I kind of like am less forgiving of that, of him. And because he's an adult and this is his job and like, (laughs) he's also has a lot of power. Um, and he just time after time, like makes life worse for these kids. I think as a mentor, if nothing else. Um, but it's interesting that you, you talked about the various stereotypes that this film like deals with. And they, the subjects were very like keyed into that, like while they're, while the film was being made um, about like how they're going to be viewed, like the mother being on welfare and, um, or William having a child uh, so young and uh, like not wanting to be the stereotype. And Steve James said that he talked to him and he's like, well, what is your plan? Like, what is your plan with this child's life and with your uh, partner. I can't remember her name. Um, and he's like, well, I'm going to be in their life forever. Like we're going to get married. And he's like, okay, then like do that. And, and you don't have anything to worry about. Like you, you're, you're proving wrong. Um, whatever the stereotype is. And we see like this relationship with his father in this one scene that is like very smartly, like juxtaposed with, uh, the saga that is Bo Arthur's dad. Mm -hmm. But, um, where his dad is like an auto mechanic and calls him in to like give, say he wants to give him this car and it's very convenient timing about like, you know, wanting to interject himself in case he becomes famous is the, the implication there. And, but it's a very funny scene that he's like, here's this, this black sedan or whatever. And it's just like missing a steering wheel. <laughs> it's like yeah. you, right. you don't get images like that, like very often that are just like <laughs> perfect. But yeah, they were very like, um, 
very tuned in to like not wanting to be viewed as stereotypes. And I think that that's uh, a part of uh, Steve James's work is like collaborating with his uh, subjects to, to treat them fairly or, or as fairly as his judgment um, can do. Yeah. There's such a level of intuition there. And, you know, mm. specifically it strikes me with, you know, these kids who are, who are as young as, as Arthur and William are and just how perceptive they are, how much they have everyone's number and like can just oh, read yeah. every single person that, that scene that, that you're mentioning where William goes and, and meets his father, who's not really in his life, you know, and he's showing him this beat up cutlass that he's like supposedly working on to gift to him. And, his takeaway from it is my dad's never really been in my life. And I think he's only here now because he thinks he can get something from me. Mm -hmm. And there are so many of those just sort of like minor little revelations that, you know, that show this, this level of understanding on behalf of these kids. Like they are totally aware of what they're perceived to be like the expectations put on them the dynamics within their families and and within all these organizations, like it's, it's just so striking and so like incredible to watch them reckon in real time with, with all of those sort of societal perceptions there. Yeah. Well, there's like a level of force maturity there at a young age Mm -hmm. that I never have had to deal with, but um, yeah, there are a lot of scenes where uh, with both of the the kids where um, they, you can just read on their face, like them, reading the situation uh one of the funny scenes is with the coach from saint joe's like the assistant coach or whatever like asking him about college like did you talk to like the leading blacks on campus and all this stuff and he's just yeah. like what are you talking about <laughs> but um uh but arthur and his dad like when his dad like is like coming back into the home after reforming or like at the beginning of his reformation and like it's so painful to watch like arthur like have to like kind of you know read the the situation but uh very begrudgingly like allow him to come back into his life and um you see the same thing with that with that moment you're talking about with with William but you like it's hard to imagine on top of all of these situations the fact that like all of these people have put their dreams into these kids and how unfair it is um, and we haven't even talked about William's brother, Curtis, who is like oh, man. a great character. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the amount of pressure that he puts on his brother just by like living vicariously through him as like this ex uh, phenom uh, is it, it's just I don't know. It, it, it's great drama. <laughs> the thing that struck me about Curtis, if we're going to talk about him now, um, is he too, I think like in his own right is countering a lot of stereotypes just as we sort of see the arc of like his struggle to find a job, his understanding that like he can't get very far without a college degree. Um, and that like, he's not happy about it, right? Like he's not living in fat city, like, uh, you know, living off the state, just like loving his life. He feels terrible. He talks oh, about yeah. waking up every day and feeling like he's amounted to nothing. And it's like, it's gutting him. Um, and I think that is why he is so intent on William's success, right? There is like this, you know, 
age old trope of like family members living through the the success of the one star in their family, right? That's not new. But um, but what I appreciate about, you know, the visibility that we get into Curtis and his life and his relationship with William is that um, he feels a lot of grief around his inability to be successful and Mm -hmm. his unwillingness to sort of like get good grades and like all he cared about was the game. He said that. Um, And that that is his grief is ultimately where his, his hardness on his brother comes from and where Mm -hmm. his intensity comes from rather than him just being this, you know, some sort of like punitive extractive figure. Um, I had a lot of sympathy for him. Oh yeah. He, I mean, he's a tragic character in his own right. Like, I don't know if you guys know, and this is extra textual, but he was like murdered after this. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, when you realize like how big of a, uh, a basketball star he was supposed to be like bigger than William and Steve James talks about like how he talked to him once about like his career and like, um, his style of basketball or like what William should be doing. And he's like, he was like, yeah, how did you play? And, and Curtis was like, well, I would just get the ball, go down the court and dunk it. And they're like, oh, okay. What if, what if this happened? He's like, no, I would just get the ball, go down the court and dunk it. <laughs> and you, you realize that, that like, uh, you know, that's not exactly like the making of a, uh, a star in the complete sense, but there's like, I guess this issue of like, mentorship that I can't speak to in the black community that like you see in this film of like maybe failed mentors and mentors that you can see that are like positive, which I think like one of the great juxtapositions in this film are the two coaches. Um, And the coach at Marshall is like the complete opposite of ping, but not in this sort of like Hollywood way of being like this soft guy. Like he's, Mm -hmm. he's like, has this like weird, he has this like ambivalence to him that you also know is still like heart heartening. Like he cares about these kids without being like pandering to them. And um, maybe it's a little too tidy to say that that's why Arthur succeeds. But like, I mean, we see what happens with uh, William on the other side with ping just being like beaten down and to the point where he doesn't care about the thing that he loves. And you have to wonder like, what what was what was Curtis's like I mean his inability to be coached like where that comes from um and yeah I mean he's clearly a very depressed man uh and grew up with the same father that William had and um I don't know there's there's a lot there in Curtis but I mean it's very depressing to see like every time William fails like in the crowd being like well, he should have done this or they should have done this. And it's like, uh, shut up for a second. <laughs> Go like, hug your brother. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think the film reckons with um, and speaks to what you're mentioning you know, about, about this relationship between William and Ping and the way he just sort of beats him down time and time again is how much of society is consistently telling both of these young black men that they won't amount to anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and a lot of people even in their own community who have internalized that same message. You know, we see that in Curtis, obviously, you know, he mm-hmm. feels uh, like he's, he's not fulfilled his potential. Uh, we, we see people kind of telling them point blank all the time that, you know, like we can extract this potential from you, but otherwise, you know, you're, you're, 
next step is to, you know, to be a Curtis or your next step is to be a bow, you know, and, and Mm -hmm. strung out and on the street. Um, and I think you're right. I I think it does sort of, uh, really highlight that contrast. And you see like in Bedford, the Marshall coach, that there is a a genuine sort of empathy for the children, like a, a, a care there that isn't really on display when you, when you move into the suburbs and go over to St. Joe's. Right. Uh, he has, I think, one of my favorite moments in the film, just like a brief sort of talking head interview um, after Arthur is uh, forced to leave St. Joseph's because he can't afford the tuition anymore. And it's, I think, one of like those sort of most like clarion statements in the entire movie where he simply says, it doesn't take a genius to realize what happened here. Uh, Arthur was was believed to have a certain level of potential, and when he was deemed unworthy and when he didn't meet it, they decided to stop helping him right. and send him right back here, right back here to Chicago. Yeah, and you see like the funding that William gets uh, from from the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, family that yeah. like <laughs> is dependent on his. I, I mean, it, it's it comes clearly from the fact that he has more potential than Arthur. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, that's another interesting, um, in terms of documentary filmmaking and Steve James in particular that like, so there's this whole arc of like this $1,800 that, that Arthur owes and the transcripts, um, that's like hanging over his head and it's like brutal. Um, and Steve said like that him and, uh, the other two filmmakers, like asking themselves, like, what do we do? Do we, ha- do we pay for this? And, mm-hmm. um, and James is a really interesting figure in that way throughout his, his films. Like, I think he became more of a like social worker type of figure with his, uh, subjects. And one of, one of his films, Stevie, which is a, a very, very good documentary from 2002 is about like, uh, a kid that he was a big brother to. Mm. And um, so it's like this very clear social worker uh, subject. And he's like constantly working with him and interjecting and thinking about ways that he can step in while making this film in order to help other people or to keep this guy from hurting other people. Um, And you see that kind of like start in hoop dreams with like this cash um, and also I think they go on there, there's that moment where like, uh, Arthur's family, the power goes out, like they lose power cause they don't pay their bills. Right. And, and actually I think that that was like a contentious, um, moment for them to shoot in because they kind of just like popped in and shot it. And you can see Arthur is like very upset in this scene where he's walking through their house without power. And it turns out he was like mad that they showed up to film that because like, again, there's like sort of this, this stereotype, um, and they just don't want cameras in their face when they're dealing with this, like very stricken poverty. And, um, uh, they ended up paying like to get their power back on. But I think they, they, they decided that it, they, they weren't going to pay this like bill that it wasn't their place for whatever reason, um, to not pay this bill. Um, but you have, uh, this, like I said, this arc of, of, of him, like trying to get this money. And this is one of those, like, again, these small victories where you just see like, Bo, I think it was smart of them not to step in um, Mm. because you do get to see like how Bo Arthur's dad cares about, like, it's a point of pride for him 
as like a part of his reformation to take care of his son, like to get to this point where he can make a difference in paying for that bill. But uh, it's a fascinating scene that um, when they're getting like, when they're talking with the financial guy at the office, that I, I think St. Joe's was apprehensive about letting them come in and film it. And they're like, why, why do you want to do this? And, and, and they said that they, they really, they know how important it was for, for Arthur's parents that they want to show, show that. Um, but really also show that like St. Joe's is just this, uh, extremely, um, coarse, cold, like institution that just wants their money. Mm -hmm. Um, and they don't care about these kids. I was going to say, you know, in that scene, that that financial advisor, accountant, whatever mm -hmm. he is, comes off as just like so patently evil, you know, like to, to like see this family struggling and to be able to just sort of, you know, uh, kind of dangle this opportunity to to get this thing that their child desperately needs in order to like finish his education and treat it as if he's doing these folks a favor. You know, I know. Like he, he's horrible. kind of like, I'm, I'm just glad that I was able to help. I'm glad that I was able to do something for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Right. And I was going to say this about, about ping, like the evil is sort of cloaked in white politeness, mm -hmm. right. Which is like the most insidious thing possible when it comes to these di power dynamics. And back to an earlier point about whether or not ping is a villain. I don't know that he is either. Um, I think like making him the ultimate villain kind of like excuse the responsibility on our part to acknowledge that this is normal. Like mm -hmm. this is like uh, this. He represents to me just sort of like your average white person in America. He is not special in his point of view. He's not special right. in his punitive perspective or the ways in which he treats these kids like, and so too with, with uh, the lead financial guy who is doing his job. Yes. But like, you can tell like these decisions are totally under his purview and he's just making them arbitrarily. Like he's like, well, if you show me good faith in uh, two months, I'll uh, I'll release the transcripts for you. Yeah. And it's just like it's it's insane to watch in real time and also understand the position that Arthur's parents are in where they know they need to be um you know grateful and uh and show that they like care about their kid when I'm sure all they want to do is just like fucking scream because it's maddening. Um, and that's one of like, you know, several moments that I think James really gets right where he's, he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to make grand statements about the system. Like it's just there in the daily interactions between these people. That's the beauty of the, of the last scene between William and Ping is like yes. mm -hmm. the, the unspoken, like just watching William's face and what he wants to say and can't decide if he knows how to say what he wants to say or whether it's going to do anything, whether it'll be received. It just like seeing him sort of like pull the punches is like the beauty of that scene. And then Ping just like not get it at all. Or if he does like not care and just be like, you know what? I can't like, if we give Ping credit to like, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, he recognizes that William uh, maybe is, 
disenchanted with him or, you know, that they didn't have the relationship, but like Ping just wants to win a championship. And he has this line about like treating them like a stable of like another one, like one leaves one, one, Mm -hmm. (laughs) another one enters and that's the beauty of it. And it's like, all right, dude. Um, But you know, he, he, not only is he another white dude, but like, he's also another coach. Like he's not a particularly evil manifestation of the private school basketball coach legend. There's a line that William says in the back half of the film when I think it's after an exchange between he and his, him and his brother um, where he literally says, it feels like everyone in my life is my coach. Um, And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, which is that like, this is normal for, you know, everyone that William interacts with that, like Mm -hmm. he is a commodity. He is, of utility to the adults around him, um, even the ones that deeply care about him. Um, and just to stay on the topic of, of Ping, like he wants to win. Yes. But I also have like sort of messy feelings about that because there are times when I feel like his ego and his like, desire to sort of like exact punitive control Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. these kids and over William in particular is actually counter to him winning. Right. Right. The, the thing that I'm thinking about in particular is the last game when William shows up five Five minutes minutes later, however long it is. Um, Presumably like not because he doesn't give a shit. We've seen that he, cares a lot about about basketball but he lives 90 minutes away but because it's 90 minutes away and because like he can't just pop over to the basketball um if you ever drive through chicago you know it's like a nightmare yeah it's it's like an insane it's an insane moment too where i think even william's brother understands what's going on right because he has this line at the end of the game this is after william had been benched for the entirety of the game until the last quarter when they really needed him and so the coach let him play and of course they didn't win because he hadn't been playing the entire game right he'd been on the bench and his brother at the end of the game says we were five minutes late this is like the championship game for them. Like this is not the time to be teaching him lessons. Yeah. And do you really believe that ping like ping when he says like, um, you know, this is one of those hard lessons, but you know, I think it's something that's going to make a difference like positively down the line. It's like, okay, sure. I'm sure he's really going to be like, Oh, ping was right. Uh, right. Because I showed up early to a job (laughs) interview or something, but, um, yeah. And, and to go back to that, that last scene between them, like the like the Hollywood version of this is like he does know what to say to Ping and he like makes him look stupid and all this yep. type of thing. But obviously that doesn't happen. But um to talk about uh this feeling that like that William says like everybody is a coach, um James said that like both of these uh kids throughout this, the, the filming of this movie came to like, look forward to, to shooting with them because they were like people that they could talk to that didn't have this investment in them, mm. like doing like, it became like therapeutic for them to like be yeah. there. Um, Cause they're just like, Oh, I can just be whatever for you. And you don't 
you don't need me to win. You don't need me to like do this or that or like get good grades or whatever. It's really clear how much the kids understand like exactly how much of a commodity they are to so many adults in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like on the topic of Ping in particular, he is like a really perfect character because of how much, how, how perfectly he embodies this perspective of like white society in power. It is, it isn't actually about winning. It isn't actually about the kids. It's about, his power. It's about his control. Yeah. For um, sure. And like, I was thinking about Jerry Maguire after we finished <laughs> watching this movie. Um, have you guys done that talk- yet for the book? We, we, we have. have. Okay. And I was thinking specifically about our conversation around um, the movie sort of like gives you a little bit of uh, an idea that it maybe wants to explore the exploitation of bodies within, uh, you know, American sports and, and more broadly within capitalism. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but then it just like sort of goes in a completely different direction and it becomes about like boutique sports management, like whatever. Um, I, I have my critiques of that film, but we have a lot of them, in fact, on that show. <laughs> I've come to love that movie, but it's neither here nor there. I mean, it's an enjoyable watch, it but is. it is also one of those just like, you know, it, it's what, 96? Like, it's the most like... It's the most like, movie. Like, <laughs> like mid-90s neoliberal movie. movie I've ever yeah, seen in yeah, my life. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the, the champion, uh, you know guy who's like we're gonna do sports management right and you're like yeah. okay buddy like finally um, i've been waiting <laughs> I've, I've been waiting for someone to take up arms um and champion this cause i digress my only reason for bringing it up is that i was thinking about jerry Maguire, and i was thinking about that it sort of skirts around this issue of um of sports as this really extreme example of the commodity the commodification of bodies mm-hmm. under under our system and and that this movie does so you know not just with the kids but also in in the example of Arthur's mother who says like I got laid off because I have back pain I mean she doesn't say it the narrator says it but then like we see her you know trying to find work doing as much as she can and it is not about um her lack of willingness to try or um, that she doesn't want to work, which is as how the narrative goes. Mm-hmm. It's literally that her body is failing her. And that means she's no longer of value. Right. And, and it's just heartbreaking. She, I mean, she's like such a, a, a beautiful figure in the movie and like seeing like the fruition of like how hard she's working when she like gets this, this um, degree, this nursing degree. And, there's this great cut in the in the movie where she's like she's at the ceremony which is just like in this like fellowship hall basement thing and there's like five people there or whatever and then it like cuts to this packed stadium before a game and it's this great like implied like victory of of what she's done um that yeah i don't know it, it it's one of the it, it's also like perfectly timed where you're just kind of like again like kind of beaten down and then there's this like there's this this grace that uh, comes through. That's that's really nice. I'm really thankful that uh, James and the and the filmmaking team found an opportunity to fit in 
uh, Arthur's mother's like victories. You know, she's mm-hmm. such an important figure and like plays such a crucial role. She's the the one point of consistency in in Arthur's life. You know, for for all of it. And she also understands. Like she also, I I think she has a great perspective about uh, what is going to happen in her kid's life. Um, like she talks about like how you want them to do well and you want them to succeed. But like, I know how hard life is. And, and she's like walking this balance of like, she doesn't want to be like, dude, your life's hot. Like your life's going to suck. Like, but like she knows it. And, and the way that she's able to like conduct herself as like this very generous uh, mother um, is beautiful. Um, And then at the end, like uh, getting to see Arthur, succeed in like the way that he does there's like this great shot where she's just like looking up at him like in this interview and it's like so it's so special you're sort of choking back tears for like the entire Mm -hmm. movie from like 20 30 minutes into the end um but the the catharsis that that reaches and like just you know like the the waterworks start immediately when you get to that kind of like back half especially with all the stuff with arthur's mother she's just like she's such a, a a beautiful figure in the movie um and she is so cut and dry about a lot of of her sort of like observations and her understanding of the system. She has also one of those like beautiful moments where they sort of juxtapose uh, sort of the exposition about Arthur being taken off of government relief. And mm-hmm. that that means that she's suddenly making like $100 less per month. Mm-hmm. Um, with her making this like really lovely birthday dinner, his 18th birthday dinner with, you know, the, the, for Arthur. Oh God, it's great. And, you know, she's, she's frying the chicken and she's making this like delicious looking like cake. And immediately after you find out that she's losing money and she looks directly at, at James and, and the filmmaking crew and says, do you ever ask yourselves how I survive on $236 a month? Like, is that ever a question that crosses your mind? Cause I ask it all the time. And she's like, it makes you, it makes you want to hurt somebody. (laughs) Yes. She says as much. Yeah. She, I think like, um, it's earlier in the film, but it's maybe when, uh, when the power is cut off and she's talking about like everyone's attitude in the house changed, um, because these kids really saw, oh, you can have one thing and the next day it's gone. Um, and she talks about like, it makes you, it makes you so mad. It makes you want to go lash out. And this movie, you know, has a, an interesting, I think, relationship with crime. Um, one that I think is sort of a result of the time period. And also maybe that there's just so much to talk about. It's like, how uh, do you want to talk about like every single uh, every single thing that we could go into it, the ways in which these people are um, are oppressed and policed but but with crime in particular that was one line where I was like yeah like you just their daily existence is enough to make you want to go fucking hurt someone mm-hmm. um, and so much of um, crime in America is like posited as like personal moral failing when we know that it mostly comes from desperation and that's like that's a a really uh beautiful moment Mm -hmm. in the film as well because there's no handling 
on James's part. It's just coming from her lips and you make the connection yourself. Yeah. And you can't, you see like this forced resiliency that, uh, poor black people have to live with like, uh, that so many other people don't know a thing about. <laughs> um, and I think an interesting part of like the constellation here is Shannon, Arthur's friend, mm. yeah. who um, like another like just great like aspect of this film is the way that like almost every single character like signifies something. Um, and Shannon, Arthur's friend signifies like this alternative route that is available to all of them to sell drugs and um arthur has this like touching moment about like talking about how this is something that it's not just an alternative route but it's something that they like fastidious fastidiously have to like work against falling into and Shan shannon just doesn't uh he, he doesn't hold hold fast enough or whatever it was like you know can't blame him but obviously arthur is very like disappointed in the fact that he like falls into selling drugs and then ends up getting arrested. I mean, he's also just a great character in that he's just like always smiling and clearly like a benevolent force, like in these people's lives. Um, and it just like, yeah, a, a text that I often think about connected to hoop dreams is the wire and the way that people yes. talk about the wire. Obviously there's not like, uh, like the police are not like a visible part of this, but they're always like sort of uh, in the periphery um but deals with a lot of the same issues around the same time another point on shannon that i think is important is how you know each of these characters uh are signifiers yes and also as we've talked about how they also counter a lot of the stereotypes and the narratives um that exist uh about poor black people and the thing that is so heartbreaking about shannon is that like he goes to live with Arthur's family because he wants to get away from a really caustic, destructive home mm -hmm. um, where we hear him say his mother is abused. Um, his father is not really around. Um, so we can see that like he's trying, right? Like he, he's finding no pleasure in his options. Like right. he's, he's doing his best to walk the straight and narrow and at least like remove himself from a situation that, he admits out loud is really hard for kids to see. Yeah. Um, and then to, to know that he goes the way of dealing drugs is like, there's like, of course he did, you know, like it's, you can only be so resilient. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. That's like, that's what I couldn't articulate. It's like, how much more does this, does this kid have to fight? You right. Know? Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting how much doesn't happen, like how much we don't see that that is like hinted towards. That reminds me of um, when William is talking about his relationship with Ping and how he's like, "There's we had some stuff like happen in my family and my girlfriend's family and just like it was really difficult. And whenever I went to Ping, he was just like, cut him off. Like, and he's just like, what kind of advice is that? And it right. is that like you guys have been talking about this maturity or this awareness and i think that um that is one of my favorite parts about this or favorite things about this film is is seeing that uh gradual i mean this the hard part is the disillusionment with basketball but the um 
the other part of that is the disillusionment with like the system around that and all of the people that are supposed to be helping you in life that you're just like being turned away from. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, there is, while it's, it's devastating and, and your heart kind of breaks for William, there is some sort of reward in seeing him kind of say, fuck this to, mm -hmm. to that system and, and to, to yeah. bring and say like, this, this doesn't make sense. Like this is wrong. Um, because you, you see time and time again, people butting up against the corrosiveness and sort of like the, the violence of the system mm -hmm. and doing nothing about it. You know, we kind of mentioned already, you know, that, that, uh, Ping's attitude sort of betrays this kind of like normalcy about the whole thing. And so, so many times you kind of see specifically these white figures in the movie say something akin to like, uh, you know, it's a shame or I don't like this, but that's, that's the way it is. That's yeah. the way things are. There's a lot of moments where like stu or admin, like school admin or teachers like say that kind of thing. Like it's a shame they didn't do better in school or on their grades or on this ACT test that has to take like five times. Um, and I think if, I, I think the film also knows that these teachers like that, William is not their only student. <laughs> like, uh, it is a shame, but it's, and, and there is a complicity. And then there's also this other side of like, they're working with so many students and hopefully trying their, their hardest. And then there's also like a, um, you wear down as a teacher <laughs> and you yes. can't, yeah. and, and, and it's like, how much do I help all of these kids or how much like effort do I have to give to this kid or this kid? And obviously like the standardized tests are a problem and yada, yada. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's very complicated. Film. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if we're trying to be as gracious as possible to, to ping, that's kind of what I see there. You know, uh -huh. is that I think that maybe there is this detachment from these characters. You know, we've, we've come to care a, a great deal about William by the end of this, but for Ping, you see that it's just, oh, this is a cycle. You know, mm -hmm, these kids mm -hmm. come in, these kids come out, some of them make it, most of them don't. And at a certain point, you have to imagine that seeing that again and again does take its toll, you know, yeah. that, that he does have to have some sort of remove uh, for fear of it, you know, just becoming this abyss that is inescapable. I mean, you, you, how tired would you get of hearing about Isaiah Thomas, like for four <laughs> years? Right. Like, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> That is one interesting thing, you know, I know, uh, I, I saw you post about this, that it is interesting, you know, that the, the time period at which this is shot is sort of like, right before Michael Jordan's ascendancy, you know, where he kind of becomes like, you know, the guy in, mm -hmm. in the NBA. And it is interesting the way that you see specifically in Chicago sports, the way that Isaiah Thomas fills that role, the way that he is sort of like pedestalized and is sort of this icon of of that city and of professional sportsdom uh to all these kids yeah it, this is the first time i had watched it since moving to detroit and um the, i was like recognizing how much detroit paraphernalia is in this yeah because isaiah thomas was playing um and also like winning championships in detroit like at that time uh and it is really funny like because michael jordan was like awesome in 1988 but he wasn't like what he became in the 90s and I, I really like that the film opens up with like this video footage of both of them like sets them up as like these totems of like one uh is like 
Chicago born and raised and like went on to be so successful. And the other one is like in Chicago and beloved and, and obviously very successful. And like you have these like figures that, that they're supposed to live up to. Um, but I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it previously of like how much like Isaiah Thomas was still so important to people in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause by the time I was like old enough to like, realize those things like all, all i cared about was was michael jordan um <laughs> but and then like for me as a basketball fan like knowing that isaiah thomas hated michael jordan there's a little bit of like just like fun <laughs> juiciness of like seeing like oh this is why because like he's so bitter that like he stole an entire city from him <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah but we haven't talked about spike lee yet uh, i was gonna get to that oh, yeah his yeah. his presence in this was kind of startling to me mm-hmm. honestly you know not not that he would be involved in it in some capacity but where he shows up is mm-hmm. kind of remarkable. So uh, William is taken to this sort of like Nike sponsored summer camp. Arthur, well, so Arthur and William are both there, but we don't see oh. William at the Nike camp. William is there, but he's apparently injured. And so he's just kind of like sitting there. Right. Um, but Arthur is like the main uh, focus. That's right. Yeah. So they are so we're at the summer camp, right? And, and with a bunch of... Uh, young high school athletes, these, these perspectives for, for college ball and, and maybe beyond, you've got a lot of, of talent scouts from all the major universities. there seeing these kids play and they cut to a couple of like kind of keynotes or sort of like lectures that these kids are in, you know, doing sort of like a, a study Dick hall. Kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Dick Vitale's there. Oh my gosh. Dick oh Vitale's, my God. uh, so you know, gross. <laughs> that, that scene is, is wild. He's such a cartoon. He's yeah. <laughs> a cartoon. But then we get to Spike Lee and Spike Lee uh, just lays it all out in a way that is very characteristically Spike Lee, which is like at the end of all of this, the only thing driving these decisions is money. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're in the middle of it. They'll they'll, you know, blow smoke up your ass and make you feel important. But all that drives this is commerce. And I mean, it was like four years after this movie came out that he made He Got Game, which is like a, a lot of that film is about that. Um, it, it is that that whole Nike camp thing is, is fascinating um, in that like it is a pleasure for a lot of these players to be taken there. And they, you know, they all love Nike um, and they're showered with gifts and how much of it is a product of like Nike marketing to like get all of these, these young players to like bring all of these things back home and just yes. like advertise for Nike mm-hmm. and tell them that we're like, we're prepping you for college and um, getting you in front of these scouts. And the whole thing is just for coaches to be able to get the best players, like to be able to see the best players, like talk about commodification of bodies. Like this is it in the most like neoliberal way possible. Mm. Uh, It's, it's pretty dark. And then there is, yeah, spike. And it is, it's funny. Like it makes me wish that um, I could have been there to see like this more in context and see, uh, spike talk longer uh about this and what the conflict is between nike and him and him being there but you know he's such a big figure and spike is so like such a conflicted person i mean that's what makes his his movies great but like he was sponsored by nike he had a big part in like nike ads and stuff and and he's constantly uh being this like paragon of like 
civil rights and sticking up for for other people but then also like doing really dumb shit that is like what where where is your head at Uh, isn't he on the crypto train right now i'm sure he is or he had a bitcoin commercial or something i don't know (laughs) but yeah he's he's interesting but um but i appreciate him uh his appearance in this movie well and that he's one of the few people not unlike the um the filmmakers themselves who don't want anything uh, from these kids and who is right. just speaking to them candidly and openly and isn't like doing a song and dance for them. Isn't like, you know, berating them, but is just like having an honest conversation about the stakes with mm-hmm. these kids. Yeah. It's, it's refreshing. There's another sort of uh, mirroring scene to that uh, when William is taken to Marquette university Mm -hmm. and the and the scouts are are really trying to woo him and get him to uh to make a commitment you know verbally and then and then like a written letter of intent and he goes to the campus and he sees the big stadium and this is the part to me where you know i i I saw things that i had never seen before really Mm. you know in terms of this like you know behind the veil of like talent scouting and and college uh sports the propaganda element mm-hmm. of it, you know, when they, when they take him to the office and they're playing a cassette tape that they've recorded with an announcer calling him making like the buzzer beating, yeah. like winning shot <laughs> in like an NCAA championship. And he gets to hear the crowd go wild with his name being chanted. Yeah. And they that newspapers. Stuff, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. Fake headlines. You know, it's like, it's intoxicating. Like how, oh, yeah. how could you, how could you not be just like completely caught up in the swarm of all of that? Right. Yeah. And then he comes home and, and, and he's like, I think I want to go to Marquette and Ping's like, well, just wait, just, just wait it out. And you see like these two different perspectives, like somebody of privilege who kind of has like some, maybe like more foresight or is like, kind of like you're going to get in somewhere. And somebody who's like, I can get into a good college and like, it can be financed. Um, which like I totally understand just being like, I, I'm just going to go there. Regardless of what my my future in basketball is, like this is an opportunity that I should take. Uh, this, but the scouting, that's another uh, rich juxtaposition in this film is like the, the scouting between uh, the junior college yes. and mm. those scenes. Yes. There's just like some guys on a bench giving out pamphlets. And, <laughs> All right. Yeah. And then when when Arthur goes to actually you know mineral, see that junior yeah. college yeah, mineral uh in in southeast Missouri or wherever it is uh and it's just like it, it's nothing you know they, there's like a a weird like, like little house out in the boards. middle of nowhere and Yeah yeah it's like um particle board walls and they have a yeah. payphone uh, and it's like I don't know like 5 6 7 8 players and it's like what 100% of the black population on the campus. Yeah, they mentioned that of yep. this of the seven black people who go to Mineral <laughs> College, six of them live in this in this athlete housing in the basketball unit. house. Yeah. Um w- one thing I wanted to mention before I forget, uh when you were talking about sort of like the moments that uh are very like emotional, um it's such a great payoff to see Arthur and William like connect. Uh, uh yes. Finally. And and you kind of don't know so they they didn't get a lot of arthur's freshman year footage like they they i don't think they understood the scope of the project at that time yet and so they missed a lot of like we see him going 
to the school, but we don't get like any footage of him in St. Joe's. Um, but I think that they uh, were very close and you see that finally, like, and uh, in the last third, like them, like going to each other's games and just like meaning so much to each other and being like the people that can understand each other. Um, and apparently like they would call each other up to hang out and like purposely do it like clandestinely so that the film crew didn't know <laughs> that they were like hanging out <laughs> just so that they could like have this private time, which is very cute. Um, but yeah, just to see them uh, not only like finally like see each other, but like go to each other's games and like William going to his games and like, there's so much like, like pregnant uh, ideas in, in the image of, of William watching Arthur succeed mm. like that. It, it allows us, the ability to project onto that, like, is it like, maybe I should have stayed here and just succeeded at a lower level and would have been more um, satisfied. Um, I don't know. Like watching him win looks pretty fun <laughs> to me. Yeah. And, yeah. I don't know that there, there's, or just him being happy for Arthur, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a uh, very poignant. We sort of do this because we're, primed as a media viewing audience to set up binaries right mm -hmm. um and the movie does so and doesn't necessarily like set them up in opposition to one another directly but mm -hmm. we're left to compare them and um and so i think as as an audience member you're bringing a little bit of like implied rivalry or like bad feelings between the two of them that like isn't there at mm -hmm. all Right. And we see that very plainly. And the thing that I love about um, just seeing them just get to be themselves with one another, totally unscripted, um, is that they hint at their relationship, um, even just in how they talk to each other. They're like, I told you when I called you, remember? Like, <laughs> da, 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 da. And then they're like, okay, I'll call you later. Like, <laughs> and you realize, yeah, that like behind the scenes, these kids have stayed friends. Um, and are, you know, one of the few people in each other's lives, particularly in the landscape of basketball, that like understands their perspective and and that they can just be themselves with. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I really appreciate um, about their relationship and us sort of us getting to see a satisfying moment of them coming together and embracing is that like. I couldn't help but think of this is very tidy. So just bear with sure. me. Um, I couldn't help but think of William's injuries mm -hmm. and them being a direct cause of like how much potential and how, how like good he was from the get go. Um, and that Arthur who is not seen as having very much potential um, and who doesn't have all of these white people sort of investing time and money and energy into him gets to play, doesn't really have any material injuries that we can see um, and ends up really being able to succeed because of it. Again, that's a very sort of tidy way to look at this. But when William goes to see him and it's in the middle of his knee injury when he's recuperating, like I just kept thinking about that. I was like, as you did, I was like, what is William thinking? Is William thinking yeah. like, if I just got to play, like, would, would I be benched right now? Would I be hurt? Like, would I be winning? 
all these questions. Well, when he's, when he's like recouping from injury and he's talking to the camera, like the one thing he wants to do is just play. He's never like, I want to win. Like he's he's not like, we need to win this championship. He just wants to play. And I, I don't think I had thought about it in those terms before, but yeah, he's just like, wow, he's just having fun out there. There's the the other side of the coin too that I couldn't help but feel as I was watching, which is that you see the the way in which this like ostensible best version of the system that's meant to cultivate talent and coal the weak is actually self sabotaging too. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. you you realize very uh, immediately, and I said this to Carly while we were watching. I was like, can you imagine if this system had been different and wanted to take care of Arthur the same way it did William? what a team with both of them would have looked like, you know, like both of these kids who are incredibly talented, you know, like playing on a varsity team together, like that, you know, in the most selfish terms possible, like would have been a really winning team, you know, but even beside the, just, you know, the nature of it being a much easier life for Arthur, like it would have gotten all of these coaches and scouts, the thing they wanted too. I think that's the, that's, that's what we like, are invited to ask when Ping and Arthur reunite in the locker room towards the end mm-hmm. is like this idea is like, is Ping going, ah, we should have, should have kept you like, you know, he's faced with like this player who's successful and brought this underdog team, like past these like much better teams. And, but you know, he's not going to be honest with himself <laughs> about it at the end of the day <laughs> and neither is the institution, but yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you, Sean, since, we have you here and we haven't done a documentary on the show before is just like about the, the genre um, Mm -hmm. and the format itself. Um, And I'll start at the, at the broadest of strokes, which is like, what makes this film a good documentary? Well, it made a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) The most money a documentary has ever made. In fact, is it the most money at at the time it was, I think it was something like, Eight million, eleven million, somewhere in that range. Um, it's funny because, like, so as like, uh, since I have this Wiseman podcast, um, I like that's usually where my head is at with this genre. And um, he, whenever he's asked about uh, nonfiction filmmaking and like, or like types of nonfiction filmmaking, like observational cinema verite, he's just like, I, I don't know, I make movies. Like, I just make movies, <laughs> and like. I mean, I'm kind of, uh, I feel like that is the answer to why is this a good piece of documentary is that it's, it's just a good movie, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean more, uh, directly, I think it is like Steve James and, and, and his crew were able to recognize what they had. Like there's one, there is like, like you were saying, like, um, you couldn't write this or they talk about how like they were, they found so much gold, but like it's one thing to like find like gold material, whatever. Um, but it's another, another thing to realize what you have and also, um, just like the implications of what you're looking at. And, um, I I think it's also special because of like, I've been kind of talking about like Steve James's like approach to filmmaking, which is really like, even though like hoop dreams is like his most known work and, um, probably like his best work. Like I, I, I think he's made um, other movies that are probably as good as hoop dreams. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see his style develop after this um, because this is like in a lot of ways, a very 
standard, which I think helped it make, helped it be successful is like very standard sort of like interview, a lot of talking head type of things and like the pace is, is good and, and there's music and um, there's like these sports scenes that are like exciting, all of this uh, easy like narrative hooks. Um, and as he developed as a filmmaker, um, became interested in like spending time with his subjects more on screen, like you get like hanging out with people rather than here. There's a lot of like short sound bites, like uh, the mom like says one line and it's kind of just like spliced in nowhere. Like it, it, it's just kind of like there and, and you, you don't go, Oh, what was happening when she said that? Um, And I think as his films go on, he, he spends more time like hanging out with subjects. Um, And he made this, this series America to me on stars a couple years ago, or I guess it was probably like three, four years ago now that um, like nobody saw it because it's on stars and nobody has stars, Uh, (laughs) but it's a 10 hour series. um, And he spends uh, this like year in a uh, Chicago public school that is very diverse. And he spends times with, with students, with teachers, with admin and parents. And um, it's spectacular. Like, it's just like a phenomenal piece of work. Um, And you get to hang out with these people and get to know people over time. And like over hoop dreams. Yes, you do get to like, you feel like you get to know these, these, these people, but also like, it doesn't feel like you're spending three or four years with them. Right. Um, And, but I I do think that that sort of like, not genericness, but sort of like uh, easily identifiable nonfiction filmmaking with sort of these like easy narrative hooks is why it became successful. But um, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question as much as just talking through like um, thinking about how his style developed into something that I think is more interesting on a case by case basis um, and encourage people to check out Stevie and America to me and city so real, which he made a couple years ago. Yeah, you also answered one of my other questions I was going to ask you, which is like, what other documentaries of his do you think are worth watching? Yeah, uh, City So Real I know is on Hulu and it's like five hours. It was like a four hour series about the 2018 Chicago mayoral election, mm. and uh, which is really funny because I don't know if you guys keep up with Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, but she's... Yes. I try not to, but yeah. Uh, yeah. She's ab- <laughs> abhorrent. So like... <laughs> In City So Real is fascinating. It's awesome. Uh, like all like this and America to me are like the again very easy watches. Like don't be daunted by their length. But so the the 2018 election was just like um, so many uh, people were were campaigning, and he spends time spends time with a lot of them, and Lori Lightfoot kind of becomes like this uh, hopeful you know, a candidate Mm -hmm. and ends up winning. And um, then he went back and made another hour after like her first year in office. And it's kind of like, okay, good. I'm glad you did that. (laughs) Cause we get to see like how immediately she just like turned. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but that film, like uh, more also than like individual actors, you get to see like um, how uh, corrupt uh, Chicago, it, like politics are, which is like fun, but there's just like so many characters and you get a breadth of the city. Um, and it, yeah, that's very good. Stevie is on, is, is on Tubi, I think like always. Um, <laughs> Great. and it's like, 
it's 2002 and it's a little over two hours long and it's just like steve james hanging out with his his uh little brother subject and it's um it's pretty pretty difficult to watch at times but i won't i won't say more than that it's very rewarding it is interesting to watch the way that james's filmmaking evolves within the three hours of hoop dreams proper you know you can you can definitely get a sense that the scope is much more marginal in the first like hour of the Mm -hmm. film um there's a lot more talking heads a lot more sort of exposition delivered it feels very much like what you would see as a like 30 minute or hour long special on pbs Uh, and then as we get into that kind of like second hour and then the the last almost hour you really start to see that artistry at work you know you mentioned that beautiful uh juxtaposition between this very small celebration of Arthur's mother at her, um, you know, graduation mm-hmm. with this massive stadium. Um, there's also a, a, a cut that I noticed immediately and, and like is rewound it, the bus and rewatched. Cut? it is the bus cut. I was going to say <laughs> it's like the most famous one in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's just a, a, a perfect, like little 32nd bit of visual filmmaking uh, where we see, the bus for St. Joseph's, you know, it's, it's deathly silent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and uh, Pingatori has total control and command over it and, and says something, you know, like a coach would say like that, which is like, remember that while we're on the way to the game, your mind should be on the game. And then they, you know, the engine turns over and, and we sit with them for a moment in complete silence. And then it just cuts to a, a perfect match on action to the bus of the the Marshall team with Coach Bedford and Arthur and and the rest they're of the players. They're playing craps and stuff. <laughs> they're they're Literally. they're playing cards in the seat. They're jumping around. They're hooting and hollering like it. And you just see the different levels of of discipline here. You see the different distinctions in these coaching methods. It says so much with you know nary a few words here. And I, yeah, I think yeah. it's like it's just a beautiful beautiful moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, like that you do see that that growth. And I, I think that they were doing a lot of I mean, when you're shooting for like three or four years, you're also just learning a lot about filmmaking as you go mm-hmm. along um, and how to conduct yourself in the room with people, um, how to how to get good uh, interviews out of people. But yeah, one scene we didn't talk about um, that I, I didn't want to forget about um, towards the end is uh arthur playing basketball against his dad oh yes incredible oh, i'm sequence. so glad you brought yes, this up sean thank you. well you see like we we've been talking about like uh this friendship between the two of them growing and just like um each of their uh perspectives changing as they you know get to be seniors and um at the end of the film you see arthur playing his dad on the basketball court and arthur is just like visibly like physically a larger like a, a a more formidable presence even though he's still like kind of a scrawny kid um and playing against his dad who you know has these like wild stories about like oh i could have gone pro whatever like you kind of half-heartedly believe um and just playing him one-on-one and the whole family is like cheering and like being raucous and uh he just like i mean he just schools him. he like beats the pants off him and but but the tension is like the way that he is able to assert dominance over his dad and the way that his dad has to take it like ends up like you know kind of begrudgingly in in the in the um in the crevices there of of like 
these interactions like him like smiling it off and and or you know trying to give it back to his son and his son just being like i don't have to do this anymore like i'm, I'm a man and, and and i can beat you i'm bigger than you i'm stronger than you like i don't have to like it, it's this great payoff for these two that like i'm sure we didn't get like a lot of what their relationship was like um but clearly there was tension there and it's not exactly like adversarial as far as we see, but there's definitely like, you know, frustration um, growing up with this guy being your dad. And um, also it's juxtaposed with the only other time that we've seen them on the basketball court together. And that's when his dad went to buy yes. drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this point where he's like, I, I don't have to live with that anymore. Um, it's very satisfying. It's, a, it's an incredible scene. I was so taken by the anger that Arthur clearly has that is come his aggression is coming out in the way he's playing against his dad and how much, as you say, he is schooling him. Um, and, and then there's a moment when the ball falls away and they're just <laughs> yelling at each other. They're not even playing anymore. Um, you know, you feel the weight of Arthur's entire life and his relationship with this man boiling to the surface and coming out. Um, Mm -hmm. when he's finally in a position to say something to him. I was thinking about the scene when Arthur's dad comes to the the court, shoots some hoops, and then goes and deals some drugs, and Arthur sees it um, from across the court. But I was also thinking about the scene when his dad comes back after leaving the family, and they all go to church. And Arthur's dad is singing, and he's singing about Jesus saving him and... um, and he's admitting the wrongs that he's done and talking about his gratitude. Um, and it's moving and Arthur is not at all moved by it. He is sitting there. He has just the most sort of sunken expression on his face. And he's so bothered by it that he leaves. He steps outside yeah. and you can see how visibly upset he is um, about. It's really difficult to watch. It's incredibly difficult to watch. And I couldn't not think about that and how many moments in Arthur's life like that he probably had with his dad and that all of those are coming out in this exchange um, at the free throw line when they're just yelling at each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have to think like he saw this guy like beat up his mom, like who knows how many times, but there's a, there's a, um, a couple things with that scene, not only the earlier scene of them on the basketball court, but I think of it as like, uh, I guess in tandem or as binary with the scene between William and Pingator um, mm-hmm. and this play between dominance and what each of them feels capable of doing at the time. But um, also uh, again, like I can't help but think every time I see that of uh, again, he got game spike Lee's uh, he got game. Um, Cause if you guys haven't seen it, uh, Denzel Washington plays the dad of a basketball player and they have this great scene uh, like that and it's um, it is like the Hollywood version of this in the best way possible but it's 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 beautiful but um, they, they make for a nice pair I appreciate that there is room for Arthur Sr. like not to be an easy villain right um, that I have a certain level of sympathy for him. Oh. I'm not like excusing being a wife beater by any stretch of the imagination, 
but we also just see how fucking desperate their lives are and like how extreme the circumstances are mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, that like you, you would imagine that it doesn't take a lot for someone in those situations to be angry at right. everything and nothing. And I was thinking about Arthur's dad and there's this interesting, I'll say, I'll say that word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this interesting sequence when they're talking about his descent into dealing drugs, when we see like a series of cuts on uh, mug shots and like booking records. Oh, uh -huh. um, and there's a, a, you know, like a dark somber music that uh, score that comes on. And I, I don't like feel manipulated by that in any way, but it did make me think about this sort of like, broader positioning of of crime um mm -hmm. at the time particularly with joe biden's infamous 94 crime bill um and being a kid of the 90s myself growing up where dare was taught in my classroom and you know the narratives around like how uh moral rectitude is uh -huh. like the the sort of answer to what is ultimately a material problem right we we know that story well on the left but but I was thinking about our society's sort of obsession with crime at this time mm -hmm. war on um, drugs. and drugs and the war on drugs. And like, I don't know that, you know, the filmmakers are doing this purposefully, but me being a person who has the politics I do, like I couldn't help but feel like they were doing a little bit of sort of like tearing at the seams of that mm -hmm. and like, Yes, they kind of like have this like intense somber moment where they show his booking photos and it's this like like as a as a movie going audience we're literate uh, in the sort of tropes of that story where we're supposed to be like kind of you know yeah. upset by that. But instead I just found myself feeling really sad and I turned to Aaron and I was like, "Yeah, like of course he's doing drugs. He lost two of his jobs. He was working yeah. two jobs." He can't provide for his family. Like, what are his other options? And that's a tale as old as time, right? As as long as we've, you know, um, constrained black populations in this way. But I appreciated that the film just sort of like opened that up and wasn't necessarily like trying to make a statement about it one way or another, but instead just allowed me to sort of you know, think about those things myself and think about this film in proximity to this like incredibly caustic and like life changing piece of legislation that came out the same year mm -hmm. film did. Yeah. There's, there's some funny, like just the, the, cause you're describing the aesthetics of this moment. Uh, there's some funny sort of like 60 minutes type of feeling to yes. some of this movie. <laughs> totally. And part of, part of it is because it was shot on beta and, um, just like some of the music of the time or, or trying like the original score, uh, this like hip hop thing is funny. And it kind of, it all goes back to like this idea of like, how does, uh, how do three white men uh, who are middle-class making this movie change the perspective? Um, it, it's funny. They were, they, they talk about how like they ingratiated themselves into, or like how, when they, when they first came to, to these subjects, like there's a level of trust that they had to earn and how like the media in particularly, it was a subject that was not to be trusted and they mm -hmm. had to yeah. um, 
transcend that. And one of the ways was like making these like mixtapes of like dunks of like William and Arthur and like Pat and they would be like passed around the neighborhood. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so they like just really appreciated that. Um, but I, I also think that that goes back to this question of why was it successful? And like, I wonder myself, like how that perspective made it more easily translatable to a wider audience. Um, but I think that the film does like transcend um, that sort of perspective on Bo and becomes aware and very sympathetic to like, yeah, like just because you understand why he's doing drugs and why he's leaving and why he's hitting his wife and uh, mistreating and robbing doesn't mean that you're also excusing it. Um, and I mean, when you watch films, especially from like the 90s, like basically like pre like wherever we are right now, like there's such a relief, <laughs> like, oh, we don't have to like, we don't have to condemn these people. We can just like under try and understand them as people. And that doesn't reflect on, on us, like, which is refreshing, but yeah. Bo AG, um, alongside Curtis is another one of those characters that's in this film that was, uh, tragically, you know, murdered after, after this film, I think something like a decade later, mm -hmm. you know, despite the film's popularity, despite its legacy, it is interesting to kind of place it contextually as we already have done, you know, in 1994 alongside this legislation around the crime bill and realizing that, you know, while we're watching Bo, uh, deal and use crack cocaine, that crack cocaine is being like legalized or criminalized rather tenfold compared to like right. you know, powder substances at the same time uh, that while we see Arthur's mother, you know, on welfare two years after this welfare reform passes, you know, and, and makes it even more difficult for, for people to mm -hmm. get federal aid. And I can't help but, you know, see some of the ways in which that maybe produced at least at the time, kind of this cultural allergy to the subject matter of the movie. You know, the, the movie I think famously, did very well at Sundance and in these kind of more, uh, you know, niche sort of film circles, but, but the population at large, I don't think latched onto it until, uh, the, you know, it curried favor with, with Ebert and, and Siskel, you know, on, on their program. Um, and I think this is exemplified too in the Oscar scandal, um, that this film was not nominated the year of its release for the, the best documentary feature, uh, mm -hmm. category. And it exposed within these circles a certain level of myopia, I guess. I'll, I'll call it just to be nice and generous to these folks, but that they weren't even really watching the movies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, maybe you can explain it a little bit better than I can, Sean, but as I understand it, uh, you know, the, the, the group that was responsible for nominating would look at all of the contenders and watch them all in a screening process. And they basically had a system in which they had sort of pen lights or flashlights of some kind. And at a certain point, they would be watching the audience. And if they saw a majority of the room flashing these lights, they would stop the film short <laughs> before it finishes. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think that this happened to a couple of other uh, films that that came out that year that I think were were believed to be contenders for the category. But uh, Hoop Dreams Two, I think it was later revealed, uh, wasn't even watched to its completion by, it, it by was the basically nominating like body. It was like the gong show, like just yeah. hit the gong. <laughs> it was like the gong show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
you know, and and we can talk a little bit about you know just like how the academy is so rarely i think like a reflection of of film culture and like what actually is or or should be deemed you know like critical and important in terms of of film history but it is interesting to think of like a a body of as we know i think exclusively white you know like middle age voters watching this film uh that you know proposes a genuine empathy towards uh, youth in an urban center struggling with poverty and to just find that repellent and just Mm -hmm, say this mm -hmm. isn't this isn't worth my time yeah or like find the sympathy towards people like Bo repellent yeah Um, yes yeah yeah there's another scene that i was thinking about with Bo where he's driving around that i find kind of like haunting where he's driving around at the end and being like this is the spot i lost this money this spot and just like have to wonder like what that feeling is actually like because I don't know, like, you know, I don't, I don't know what it's like to be an addict, but like, that's probably not easy. Yeah. And he says, I think like the line that hit me too in that sequence is, um, I just like think about how much money I threw away on these corners and, you know, you can't help but think back to like the, the mom sort of talking about like, do you ever wonder like how I get by on Uh $268 a month? And you're like, yeah, or the like, transcripts. Or the transcripts. Yeah. The transcripts are like, that's one of those punitive things, right? Where you're just like, it's it's purely out of this like perspective of these people. We're going to uh, teach them how to like live properly. We're going to teach yep. them yeah. that they've, they've failed morally and so mm-hmm. they need to be punished. And, uh, it's over fucking transcripts. It's like insane. And $180 when you are living off of $268 a month is like, it's maddening. It is a maddening, maddening yeah. thing. And there's a certain level of, you know, responsibility and accountability that I think Bo takes rightfully so. But there's also this kind of like whip that he's cracking on himself in that scene where he says, mm-hmm. you know, I think about what life would have been like for Arthur if I hadn't been using, if I hadn't been, you know, out on the streets when he was enrolled at St. Joseph's. And I think he carries and, and shoulders a lot of that burden himself and, and feels like a lot of the blame rests on him for being absent and not providing during that moment when they needed money without realizing that like this organization is extorting you, you know, right. like you are a poor black family. Like they would just keep raising the tuition. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's not much else to say about that. It's, right, it's right. you know, it's it's devastating, but it is it is a, a really harrowing, just like very emotional scene, just watching him kind of reckon with that past and that history and and that kind of idea of what could have been, you know, which a lot of this film tries to tackle. Yeah, I, I mean, that's another reason why the movie is so good is that there are so many moments that it just kind of like leaves, kind of leave like there is no like one thing that certain scenes are doing like it's just a, it's it's giving you space to to project and to consider what people are thinking um which is just uh good nonfiction filmmaking the last thing i'll say about this film especially with regards to it being a good sports movie the thing that i think makes it a fantastic sports movie is that the ending is not like the jerry Maguire ending right <laughs> it's not the um it's not the 
uh, everyone winning and like there's a triumphant moment of a victory. It's very real and it's complicated and messy, um, but it's not necessarily like sad. Um, yeah. And that's the thing that I love about it. It's like you you come along on this this journey with these kids and um and I think for like both of them to end up like in the NBA or at like division one schools or whatever, I think would would betray the thing that we've been talking about this with this film right. uh, in its entirety, which is that like this is normal. Like there are mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of kids like Arthur and William. Um, and so that they both end up going to college and we see in the postscript that they have some trouble academically, but also received like some royalties from the film. You're kind of pulling it into, to this, uh, this fourth wall. And, um, and I just appreciated that like it closes with, them talking about how they used to want to be in the NBA, which is what the film opens on. And we see in their own words, if we haven't, haven't already seen through the course of the movie tangibly, but we see them say like materially that they don't care about that anymore. Yeah. William's like, it became a job. Yes. <laughs> like it just wasn't funny anymore. Yeah. I was like thinking about it more as like a sports movie or uh, yeah, as a sports movie, like, as somebody who watches a lot of uh, NBA and it can be um, extrapolated to like uh, any pro sport probably, but um, how narratives about players who are successful um, diminish like all of the things that we see affecting these kids. And it just yes. becomes like a narrative of like, they worked really hard um, and they made it like this, like bootstraps kind of thing. Um, and there's just like no recognition of like how, uh, like all of the ways that, uh, for many of them, uh, the the decks just like stacked against them. It's, it's a brilliant film. You know, it's, it's the kind of just depth and raw emotion that I think, you know, uh, fiction filmmakers and and even, you know, other nonfiction documentarians seek out for their entire careers. And, um, you know, as you said at the, the top of the show, it's, it's three hours. It, it, to me, I know, you know, before I had seen it for this, uh, was definitely intimidated by the length of it was definitely <laughs> intimidated by like what, what it was and what I've heard about it. You know, like, am I, am I in for a three hour j- emotional journey with these kids? Um, and it's just profoundly watchable. It's, you know, it, it, it came and went and I felt like I had experienced a lifetime within like the blink of an eye. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a really, really incredible bit of filmmaking. Well, uh, one thing I'll say to that is like what I've found, especially like watching a lot of Fred Wiseman movies is like with good documentarians, like I've much like I've come to, to welcome like length, like just appreciate length, like so much more than like, um, especially when like really shitty contemporary documentaries are like meant to be like 80, 90 minutes, like Netflix things that you just like digest and like move on. It's just like spending time with, with with not only people that are interesting, but with, um, but through the help of like filmmakers who are able to see things interestingly. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's a good place, uh, as any to close, uh, out this episode today. Again, Sean Glennis, thank you so very much for hanging out with us for a little bit today and, and talking hoop dreams. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sean, where can uh, people find you and your voice and your work? 
Uh, just look for Wiseman podcast, um, uh, wherever, uh, you listen to podcasts and, and do that. That's, that would, that would mean a lot to me. Um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, I hope that we are, uh, doing something that is enjoyable for, for people, but, uh, also, uh, hope that it gets you to watch Fred Wiseman movies cause they're, um, spectacular. Um, and I mean, there's, there's a handful of really good ones from the nineties, just throwing it out there. Hey, hey. Do you want to like maybe <laughs> mention a couple just so yeah. we know? Oh, oh. Or, or even more broadly, uh, Sean, I was going to ask maybe, you know, Wiseman is a, a formidable mm-hmm. you know, force and a body of work. What, what are like the three that you would recommend someone watch to get into Wiseman? Yeah. Um, I would definitely say start with one from the last decade. Uh, so there's like Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, um, or In Jackson Heights about the Queens neighborhood that are both fantastic. Um, so I do one of those. Um, I would probably do, uh, welfare, which is, uh, one of his earlier ones about a New York welfare office. And then I would do one of these nineties ones, like, uh, in 1999 Belfast, Maine, um, is a fantastic movie about this rural, like port town in Belfast. Um, it's quite good. That's a good start. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Wiseman's having a moment right now, I feel like, on film Twitter. I I don't want to put it solely on you and Arlen and your program, but I will give you all substantial credit for for, for, uh, starting that train or, you know, getting that ball rolling. Uh, Hopefully it's just the beginning. (laughs) It's it's going to be a Wiseman year, folks. You heard it here for first. Uh, Sean, thanks again so much for being on the show. Um, as always, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod for $5 a month to get a bi-weekly bonus episode and some other cool content there. Uh, shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names <laughs> are Linda and Jesse K. And we will catch you all the next time. Thanks, everyone.
made of broke. 